Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Lord's Day. We thank You that we, Your people, have this brief time to be able to gather together and to look at the doctrines of Your Word. We ask today that You would guide us by Your Holy Spirit. May You be glorified in our continued study of Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, you you may recall that when we introduced the idea of the canon of Scripture, and by canon of Scripture, uh, as our confession uh, puts it, we're talking about Genesis through Malachi, Matthew through Revelation, as we understand it as the totality of the canon of Scripture. And we said that this sits on a three-legged stool, as it were, and one of those legs is the divine qualities, the divine qualities of Scripture, and you'll see that at the top of your your handout. Uh, And again, this is just simply a review. If you want this uh, in greater depth, go back You can go to our YouTube channel and pick up this from last week. Uh, But we looked at the beauty and the excellency of Scripture, that uh, self, the self-authenticating testimony, so to speak, as the uh, confession says, the heavenliness of the matter, the majesty of the style, the many and other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof. And just as a reminder, we looked at that last week, but that's quoting from Westminster Confession 1.5. The second thing that we looked at last week was the power and efficacy of the Scripture. Uh, Scripture is indeed living, it is active, it is powerful, and it is through this testimony of the Gospel that it gives the, as the Confession puts it, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, that, that the Gospel comes through the Word of God, and that is powerful, and it is effective to its purpose. And so it's not just what Scripture says, but it's also what Scripture does. Scripture in and of itself is powerful, the Holy Spirit working through it. And this helps us understand then, uh, as this whole study has been, uh, to understand Scripture as a means of grace. An outward and ordinary means of grace, uh, as it says in the Shorter Catechism, question and answer 88. And then the third area that we looked at last week was the unity and the harmony of Scripture. The unity and the harmony of Scripture. Uh, Again, our confession in chapter 1.5 refers to this as the consent of all parts, the consent of all parts, and the idea of that is, is there, there's agreement in Scripture. If we are walking through the Word of God and we decide that, that uh, we, or we believe that we have found error, if we believe that there are parts of Scripture that fight against each other, uh, then our understanding is the problem is not with Scripture. The problem is with us. That's right. We're the problem, not the holy word of God. And so, while things may not always be clear to us, Scripture is in and of itself unified. The consent of all the parts agreeing. And when we say that God's word is consistent with itself, unified as a whole, what we mean is, and again, this is what we covered last week, uh, we understand that it means that it is orthodox. 
That, that is, that it is an agreement with itself of the truth. That also there is what we call theologically redemptive and historical unity. That is, that the, the story of, of Scripture, of our redemption, God's covenant of, of grace, and, and the historical understanding, all of that is in complete agreement from the beginning to the end. And, and I forgot again, to, I said last week I was going to bring you um, the, the Scripture. It's a fun little section in which uh, you walk through and look at the agreement between uh, Genesis and Revelation. And it's just, if, I know some of you have already done this before, uh, but it's just a brilliant uh, picture to look at the Garden of Eden and the new heaven and earth and the conclusion of Revelation and the beginning of Genesis. It is remarkable how chapter 1 and chapter 22 come together in, in agreement, uh, which again is just uh, the point that we're making here is there is redemptive and historical unity. And then finally, and then thirdly, and I believe this is on your handout, is there is structural unity. And what we mean by structural unity is that <clears throat> there is covenantal unity. All right, So we think about this in terms of the covenant of works. The one command that God gave uh, Adam, uh, which Adam disobeyed, so also the fall, and the covenant of grace that God established with Christ from the beginning. And it is through that covenant of grace that God works both in His old covenant people as well as His new covenant people. One covenant seen throughout the totality of Scripture, we would say, from Genesis to Revelation. And so also a canonical structure that, that God who is a God who reveals Himself has chosen to reveal Himself in writing. He has chosen to reveal Himself in His Word. So, that's a review. We covered a lot last week, didn't we? Uh, and so this week, what we're going to look at is the second uh, part of that stool, and we're going to, to call this the prophetic or apostolic origins. The prophetic and apostolic origins. And, and, and just to let you know on the front hand, um, most of what I am, am going to teach you uh, on this section is really going to focus on the apostolic origins. Um, I think for, for many people, uh, because of, of Christ's acceptance of the Old Testament canon, uh, there are a few questions in regards to that, but I think that, that many Christians have questions about the New Testament canon. And uh, so we're going to, to Mostly, although I'll, I'll vary a little bit, um, we're going to look at uh, the apostolic origins. And as I said before, if you if you want to drill deeper than what I'm giving you here, I really encourage you to take a look at Michael Kruger's book. Michael is a professor at RTS in Charlotte, and he has a wonderful book on the New Testament canon. And so if you want to drill deeper than what you're getting here on Sunday mornings, uh, check out Michael's book. But in general, when we talk about the prophetic and apostolic origins, um, one of the frameworks that we talked about last week for us to consider is the covenantal framework. 
understanding that God works covenantally, understanding that God established His covenant of grace in Christ, and we see the outworkings of that, whether we're referring to the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, uh, leading into the new covenant, all of which falls under the concept of covenant, and also from the concept of redemption. Um, we see that the, 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 what we might say the um, meta-narrative, that's a good literary term, right? The meta-narrative of Scripture is the telling of God's redemption of His people. And we see that, for example, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, where uh, the God in the curse upon the serpent, we hear the prophetic imagery, or what we would call the proto-evangelium, that is the, the earliest notion of the gospel, in which it is through the seed, singular, of the woman, uh, looking toward Christ, that our enemy will be defeated. And so all of this we see as recurring themes that we should also see through recurring themes in the canon of Scripture that we have. But the question really becomes, when many people have questions about the origins of our, our canon, the real question becomes one of means, doesn't it? I mean, how, how, did, we, how did we get this canon? How did it come to us? And what we find is that God spoke through men. God spoke through prophets and apostles. Now think about this with me, what this means. What this means is is that God has chosen to call and God has set aside men to guard, to preserve, and to transmit His revelation to His people. Now, to to be clear, could God have done like He did in conveying His moral law to Moses and to the children of Israel? Could God have said, hey, I need lots of tablets. Just line up the tablets and I will write with my finger upon the stone, just as He did, giving what we understand to be the Ten Commandments. Certainly God could have done that. But even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, which came literally from the hand of God, we know of the Ten Commandments through whom? Moses. In fact, the the, the first five books of the Bible are attributed to Moses, as Christ referred to them, the books of Moses. And we understand that God chose to work this way, that He chose to work through men working by the Holy Spirit. And God has chosen to do this, not haphazardly, but He has chosen to do this by the means of office. By the means of office. In other words, that we have the Old Testament by virtue of the office of prophet. Now, sometimes there there are hang-ups here. Sometimes people will say, um, well, I I get it, Moses. Well, was Moses a a prophet? I think more like Elijah, or I think more like Isaiah and and Jeremiah. And yet, over and over again, we, we see the Old Testament writers referred to as prophets. Moses, 
was referred to by God as, quote-unquote, my prophet. Even David, which I think for many people uh, will, will struggle and say, well, you know, he was a king and, you know, he conquered Goliath and, you know, but prophet? And yet, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it, Peter refers to David as a prophet of God, so forth and so on. And, and so within the Old Testament delivery, God called and commissioned His prophets, such as Moses. Within the New Testament, we have the office of Old Testament prophets. In the New Testament, we have the apostles. The New Covenant prophetic word conveyed through Christ called and commissioned apostles. You may recall that Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And in, that, in the context of that, he's speaking directly to his disciples. Yes? Yeah, most theologians, so in, it's by virtue. So, so uh, Hilda's question was, isn't John the Baptist considered an Old Testament prophet? And uh, the answer is yes. Oftentimes theologians will refer to him as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And where we get that from is from Jesus' word. Remember when John's disciples uh, came to him and uh, asking questions, are you the one or is there another? And Jesus gives uh, that somewhat cryptic answer. And then he turns and he, and he says, "There's no greater man has been born than, than John the Baptist. And, and the idea is, is that that's the, that's the conclusion of that. Now, to our knowledge, John the Baptist didn't write uh, any of the, the biblical books, but nevertheless, he held, to, to your point, he did hold the office of, of prophet. But in terms of apostles, and again, my focus primarily on the New Testament, is that Christ commissioned His apostles. And this is going to be important when we talk about the closing of the canon. So, so if Christ commissioned, called and commissioned His apostles to convey the history, to convey the truth of what Christ commissioned them to record, then at the conclusion of the death of the last apostle would be the conclusion of what? The canon of Scripture. So we understand this rightly in terms of some of the heretical books that were written after the, the apostles died. We talked last week briefly about uh, the, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which a number of years ago was sort of the, the, the hot button, which was no hot button at all, really. It had been dealt with all the way back in the, in the, the third century. But nevertheless, uh, the point is, is that the, the office conveyed of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, was commissioned by God. God. Describing God's work through His prophets and apostles, here's how Peter wrote to the church, teaching them. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, what Peter is describing there is the canon of Scripture is made up of the Old Testament prophetic writings, and what has been conveyed to you by, quote-unquote, your apostles. Meaning, the apostles that you understand, the apostles of the church, the new covenant apostles, of which was a temporary and ceasing office, not a continuing office. 
Furthermore, prophetic and apostolic office was a unique and unrepeatable office. In other words, the point I'm I'm making here is that we do not look forward to new apostolic revelation, but in retrospect. In other words, when we gather on Sundays, nobody is sitting here waiting for, I wonder what the new revelation is for this for this coming Sunday. I wonder, wonder what we're going to learn by virtue of this new revelation. No, we, we do what? I mean, many of you have them on the tables in front of you. We're, we're, we're opening the Word of God and we're looking back, right? We're looking back because of the ceasing of the apostolic office. We look back to the record, to the recording of Scripture, the one-time deposit laid down by Christ's apostles. The church then is not built, and I'm drawing from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. I know many of you will know this uh, verse, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we're taught that the church is not built on new revelation, but is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. And so it is upon the apostolic rock that Christ builds His church. And again, that's Protestants differ wholeheartedly from our Roman Catholic brethren, right? Uh, we, we don't believe that Peter is the head of the church, but rather Christ was speaking to the office uh, and the foundation of that apostolic teaching. So, With that being said, that we have received God's Word through the office of the prophets and the apostles, how was this conveyed? How do we today, as beneficiaries of a complete and closed canon of Scripture, how did we receive that? And there's a couple of ways that for us to think about this in general. The first is, that originally, and I'm, I'm going to just focus for right now on the New Testament, uh, the first thing for us to focus on is oral tradition. Now, the word tradition here is you're, you're going to have to step out of American pop culture, so we're not talking about, you know, every Easter we have a roast with carrots and potatoes, that's our tradition. It's not what we're talking about here. Uh, we're talking about in the literary sense of that which was set down as right, as true, as verifiable. For example, the apostles received what Jesus had said and what Jesus taught. They were the ones who received that record. Think about it this way. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. The us there is is a reference to the apostles. The tradition is is that this is, we we might uh, say, um, the historical account set down and verified. That's what's meant here, uh, you could say, by uh, tradition. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, for you're all familiar with this because this is the introduction to the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, 
so forth and so on. We're very familiar with that intro, but sometimes we, we take for granted that what he's saying is, is that I am passing on to you with these instructions on the Lord's Supper what I have received as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, this oral tradition also is a recording, not yet in writing, but, but verbally, of what Jesus did. Again, what he said, it, it, Paul said to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And so what Paul is, is conveying there to the church and, and to us subsequently is uh, that there is an oral tradition of the historical record that is coming from the apostles and is being taught to the church. Just as I am teaching to you today, so also they were teaching to the church the truth of Jesus Christ. I have, just as a passing note, on your handout for any of you who would like to, to do a little bit more of a study on this or do a more in-depth Bible study, I would direct your attention to Luke chapter 1, Romans chapter 6, Galatians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 2, and Jude chapter one. And if you're watching the video, I'm so, sorry I went through that uh, so quickly. Uh, but you, those of you here today, you should have that on your, your handout. So, tradition in this sense does not mean human tr tradition. And I might add, it also does not mean ecclesiastical tradition. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? We're not saying that the canon of Scripture is Scripture because the church says, well, we've decided that's Scripture. Now, we're going to get to the church reception, and we're going to get to the importance the church plays in recognizing the canon of Scripture. But for right now, the point I'm trying to make is we're not talking about human tradition. We had roast carrots and potatoes for Easter last year. And we're not talking about ecclesiastical tradition, meaning the church has said this is Scripture, so doggone it, we're just going to keep on keeping on. No, what we're talking about is the apostolic tradition. And, and that's, a, that's a key point of note, apostolic tradition, that which has been handed down. <clears throat> Luke begins the very beginning. Um, if you're reading through the Bible right now uh, with us on our church uh, reading schedule, you're in Luke uh, right now, and many of the characteristics of the gospel of, of Luke um, are... Uh, <clears throat> conveying of these traditions, for example, um, and I can't remember if I get to this in, in our notes, uh, but many scholars believe uh, that the, the base of the synoptic gospels was either the gospel of Mark uh, or what scholars call Q, uh, which is an un unknown source that might have been a written record of this, and that uh, Matthew and Luke both draw from Mark or what Mark drew from. So this is why whenever you're reading the synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see direct quotes being carried over to the different Gospels. You don't see that in the Gospel of John, for example, uh, but in the synoptic Gospels, we see the, the idea of this base. 
And um, if, in fact, it was Mark or whether it was not is, is irrelevant. The point is, is that as Luke begins his gospel, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us," meaning they've already been compiled, right? Luke's not original in this. "...just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word had delivered them to us." Who were the eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word? And the key point here is he didn't just say eyewitnesses, did he? He said in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, "...the eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, who are those folks? Those are the apostles." The apostles were both eyewitnesses, so also the the called ministers of God's Word. And so they are the ones that Luke is drawing from and compiling his gospel. So what was conveyed orally was recalled, and it was recalled by the Holy Spirit. And this should not be unbelievable for us, because this is exactly what Jesus told His disciples was going to happen. You may recall that Jesus said to His disciples, quote, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And so the Holy Spirit, speaking from God to and through the apostles, delivered them to them the tradition that was to be conveyed to us. So, moving from the prophets and the apostles to the oral tradition that is delivered to the New Testament church, then how do we then have written texts in front of us? How is it that if I say, please turn to John chapter 3, verse 16, uh, you can open that up. Now, to, to be clear, chapters and verses were not in the original uh, Bible. Uh, those were added uh, long, 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 long after, uh, thankfully, where we can find our way uh, through the text. But, but nevertheless, you have a Bible that you can turn to, a New Testament that you can open. And so how then have we received these written texts? I want to I phrase this in a question that Michael Kruger asked because I like the way that he asks it. And that's this. How could this foundational apostolic tradition have been preserved in a way that makes it always accessible to future generations of the church? I'm going to read that question again. It's an easy answer, Right? But I want to read, I love the way that he asks it. How could this foundational apostolic tradition have been preserved? And how could it have been preserved in a way that makes it always accessible to future generations of the church? It's the same question I asked, right? How in the world did God deliver His Word that even in 2023, think about this, this is extraordinary. In 2023, we have a canon of Scripture that is open, accessible, and if you know how to read, you can read the Word of God. That is extraordinary. And so, the short answer is, it was written down. I'm reminded of God's Word to the prophet Isaiah. And now, go. Write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book 
that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. That is a beautiful testament of what God has done consistently through His prophets and apostles. And so, in sum, the New Testament documents can be understood as the written expressions of the authoritative, foundational, eyewitness tradition delivered by the apostles of Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Well, this does not mean that an apostle had to write it down. Some of you are thinking, now hold on just a second. You said this apostolic tradition is important. The origin is important and, and now you're contradicting yourself. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, is that when I open up the book of Luke, who was not an apostle, I can trust that it is of apostolic origin, which is what Luke says. When I go to the Gospel of Mark, as it has been so named since the earliest days, Mark wasn't an apostle. But I can trust that it was of apostolic origin. Now we'll get to the church's reception of that uh, in in the coming weeks. uh, Actually, not next Sunday or the next, but the next. Uh, But where I'm going with this is is that... It does not have to be actually take pen or quill in hand and write it down by the hand of the apostle for it to be authoritative. But God used by His sovereign purpose the skills and gifts necessary for preserving the tradition. And so what what we might say are the qualifiers. So what are the qualifiers of this apostolic Tradition, and this of course would apply to the prophetic tradition as well. What are the qualifiers for this? Well, number one, it had to have been written during the apostolic age. Do I have this on your handout? It had to be written during the apostolic age. Why? Why did Luke's gospel? have to be written during the apostolic age, and why, among a myriad of things, do we deny the validity of the Gospel of Thomas, in addition to the fact of its age? The Gospel of Luke was written within the era of the apostles, meaning that what? That the apostles as they gave the information, or Luke's probably drawing from the various tradition at that time, but the apostles could say, that is not true. That is not valid. That is, that is incorrect. I was there. What Luke wrote down is false. That would be corrected, right? But during the apostolic time, the apostles are not only able to give the tradition but so also they are able to validate it. Yes, this is correct. This is precisely what happened. We think about that in in terms of the synoptic Gospels, right? Uh, Or even take all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Many times we see uh, the same account being told, but from a different perspective, from a different eyewitness testimony. In all of this, the apostles are confirming. And so the first qualifier is is that it was written down during the apostolic age, ensuring oversight of transmission. Number two, it was written by someone whose source was an apostle or the apostles. 
And again, drawing from Luke chapter 1, uh, the Gospel of Luke who wrote what was handed down by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. Or we think about this, the church tradition has been that the Gospel of Mark is based on Peter's testimony. And I think there's, there's no reason to doubt that that is the case. Certainly that would have been negated if, in fact, that had been different during the apostolic period. And so it's during the period of the apostles, and so also it is written by someone, for example, in the case of Luke, and in the case of Mark, it is written by someone who is with and being guided and gathering, uh, gar- gathering information on all of this. And, uh, and, and so that acts as a qualifier. Now, let me give you an example that would, that would come really, really close to that, but would not be Scripture. So, many of you have heard of Polycarp. Uh, any, any historians here know who Polycarp was? Um, okay, so, so Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And so, you know, you think about it just in terms of, of mentoring Jesus, John, Polycarp. That's a really good position to be in, right? And, and so Polycarp was a direct disciple under the Apostle John, and Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippians. We know that Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians. We understand it to be the Word of God, as Paul was an apostle called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, But Polycarp also wrote a letter to the Philippians, and he was a disciple of John. And so do we regard Polycarp's letter to the Philippians as Scripture? No, we don't. Because it was not written during the apostolic era, and it was not written under the direct guidance of the apostles according to the apostolic tradition. So Polycarp's letter, while it may be beneficial uh, as extra-biblical, it is not part of Scripture. So, did the apostles then know what was going on? As we move from oral tradition, from Jesus to the apostles, to the conveyance of the oral tradition, to the writing down either directly by the apostles or by the the apostles' appointment, did the apostles know that they were conveying, or or even the prophets conveying, uh, the Word of God? We might think about this in terms of of literary uh, terminology. Uh, Did they have authorial awareness? I think that's the word I used on your handout. Authorial uh, awareness. Did they understand that they're, they're authoring this? And in reading the books of Moses, for example, talking about the Old Testament, in reading the books of Moses, it is apparent that Moses knows that he is delivering God's special revelation to Israel. You can't read the books of Moses and come away with any other understanding. There is an awareness, albeit humble, there is an awareness in Moses. Likewise, the New Testament writers have an awareness of God's revelation to the church. Think about it this way. Arguably, the first gospel that was written, the gospel of Mark, begins this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if Mark is the earliest New Testament book written, think about that as a way of introduction. Here it is. 
Here it is. This is the gospel according to Jesus, the Son of God. And if Peter was the apostolic source for that, Peter was the eyewitness. Peter, in fact, with John and James, was within the closest uh, friendship with Jesus. And so, his conveying to Mark the eyewitness accounts. So also, John. We think about John as an apostolic witness. Um, you cannot read the Gospel of John and come away, especially if we understand that John refers to himself indirectly in third person by saying, the one whom Jesus loved, right? You can't come away with any kind of understanding other than John knows that he was in close fellowship with Christ. He is conveying the truth, and so John was... Uh, aware of what he was conveying. But one of the the best examples of this is the Apostle Paul, right? Uh, You read Paul's letters, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us... Pause. What did Paul just say? We, the apostles, just gave you the Word of God. That's about as self-aware as you can get. He goes on to say, You accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. And in 2 Thessalonians, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you have been taught by us, either by spoken word or by the letter. Again, that's that tie-in between the oral tradition and the written Word of God. Paul contrasts then, uh, or rather I I should say, even in Paul's contrast when he is quoting Jesus and when he is conveying the Word of God, uh, you may recall that Paul says these somewhat confusing words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says, I, not the Lord, say to you. Which is not saying, well now this part's not the Word of God. No. What he's saying is, I was quoting Jesus. Now, as an apostolic authority, I'm now telling you this. And so he's conveying it. He's very aware that he is presenting the authoritative Word of God. He's aware of this. John speaks with apostolic authority, qualifying himself in 1 John chapter 1, and also the book of Revelation in which John claims direct revelation from God as God spoke through an angel. That's how the, revel- uh, the apocalypse begins, right? Chapter 1, verse 1. John is telling us where he got this. So, we're out of time. Let me conclude it this way uh, with a quote from Michael Kruger. The canonical books, our canon of Scripture, the canonical books forced themselves on the church by their intrinsic apostolic authority. Uh, That is, is that they were truly conveyed, the true Word of God conveyed through the offices of His appointment and the church did not decide what Scripture is, but rather, as Kruger puts it, they were forced upon the church. We're going to pick up on that next time. Let me pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You that Your Word is true and it is right and that we may go to Your Word and be sure that it is Your Word as it testifies of itself as the divine qualities 
teach us and say to us, this indeed is the Word of God. So also we thank you by your supernatural appointment that you chose prophets and apostles to convey your Word to your people. We thank you for this. And so now it is according to your Word that we assemble to worship you on this Lord's Day. We pray that you would guide and direct us by the presence of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.